Welcome to the AR Show, where I dive deep into augmented reality with a focus on the technology and uses of smart glasses and the people behind them. I'm your host, Jason McDowell. Today's conversation is with Matt Meisnicks. Many of you know Matt as a serial entrepreneur and former investor focused on augmented reality. Matt was most recently CEO and co-founder of 6D.ai, a company building tools to help mobile phones understand the real world and enable compelling AR experiences. Matt started his career in a number of engineering and business roles before shifting his focus to augmented reality more than 10 years ago. Matt was head of customer development at Layer, an early consumer AR company. He founded Deco, the first mobile mixed reality platform for iOS. Matt worked at Samsung as a director of product development in AR and VR, and he was a founding partner at SuperVentures, an early stage investor in AR and VR. Most recently, he was the founder and CEO of 6D.ai, which gained a lot of recognition among AR developers and enthusiasts for the demos they published showcasing their advanced software APIs, enabling more useful and exciting AR experiences. Earlier in 2020, Niantic acquired the company. I caught up with Matt earlier this summer to talk about his entrepreneurial journey at 60.ai. He shares an honest and insightful perspective across a number of topics, including mapping the world for AR, what 6D got wrong about their target customer and how they addressed it, the worst mistake they made and what they learned from it, how companies are bought and valued, the responsibilities of a startup CEO in creating optionality, the emotional roller coaster, the role of self-care, and more. Matt shares a lot of hard-earned wisdom. I think you'll love this one. As a reminder, you can find the show notes for this and other episodes at our website, varshow.com. Let's dive in. Matt, we're going to talk about 6D.ai's recent sale to Niantic, but let's start a little earlier in the story. What was happening a couple years back as you were starting 6D.ai? What was happening in the AR market and what compelled you to start the company? So when was this, 2017, 2018? I'd, I'd, left, um, I'd left Samsung where I'd been working on you know, AR experiments and product ideas there, and I really was thinking then I'd, I'd look at starting a, a new company in the space, um, really building on you know, things I'd learned at Samsung, things I'd learned at, at my startup prior to Samsung, Deco, that, that failed. And what I kind of realised was that there were the ideas that I thought were interesting and that needed to be built, just the technology wasn't there, it was science fiction. And so I ended up joining, uh, you know, my friends Ori Inbar and, and Tom Emmerich and Mark Billinghurst to help get Superventures off the ground, which was a small pre-seed AR fund. And that really just gave me this great ability just to survey, you know, what was going on in AR, talking to so many different companies. And during that, I met, you know, I met Victor, uh, my co-founder, you know, Professor Victor Priscaro at Oxford. And Victor was showing me some new research um, that had come out of his lab that allowed sort of real-time on-device 3D reconstruction using a monocular RGB camera. And that was one of the sci-fi pieces that, you know, hadn't existed before because one thing that I'd learned at Deco and, um, is that, you know, for, you know, for, for sort of AI to live up to its potential, the content needs to be believably part of the real world. It needs to interact with the real world as if it's really there. And it can only do that if it understands the uh, physical world. And so you needed to be able to capture this you know, digital model of the physical world. And for that to kind of work 
addict, addict sort of consumer, just works type of product that had to be captured on your phone in real time. It just was too much hassle to do it, you know, in advance. So that was kind of the, you know, the, the, the market, not much was going on. You know, Victor had kind of solved this problem. And then around the same time, um, AR Kit and AR Core had just been, you know, they'd been announced at WDC and just kind of launched with the new phones, um, iPhone, I don't know, 10 or something back then. So there was a lot of sort of hype because Apple was finally entering the market. And I'd written, you know, some blog posts that were really sort of well-received, kind of explaining how all that worked. And so everything sort of coming together just just made it, you know, sort of a no-brainer to, to sort of start a company to solve something that we knew needed to be solved that most people didn't understand. We had quite a, a unique technical capability and definitely that first wave of the market was, was kicking off. And what was the piece of the overall problem you were attempting to solve at 60.a? Were you trying to tackle the bigger problem or, or how were you kind of thinking about structuring where to start? Yeah, so we knew, you know, I spent about a, almost a year with Victor just sort of pushing around ideas with the technology and talking to different customers and, and thinking about use cases and, and what, you know, what would work and what wouldn't. And what we realized was that, you know, to deliver on the promise of AR, you needed this digital model of your, of your living room, but we, we also knew that, well, if AR was going to work everywhere, you actually needed a 3D digital model of everywhere. And that was... You know, a huge, huge problem. And you know, talking more with Victor about you know the research pipeline, what was coming. We we also knew that you needed more than just a you know geometry. You needed more than just a mesh. You actually needed the ability to relocalize in any spot. So it means get your you know your your position, like a visual positioning surface, very very accurately. And then on top of that, you started to then need some sort of semantic understanding of things in the scene. You needed to know that this part of the mesh was a different object to that part of the mesh. You needed to know what those objects were. And we had a sense that that rapid uh, you know, development of on-device, real-time 3D neural networks was sort of where the next wave of research was going to come in and Victor was kind of leading a lot of that. And so we, we sort of, uh, you know, the, the, that was the technical direction that we felt the world was headed and what needed to be built. And... We also knew that a lot of this stuff needed to run at least partially in the cloud. And these were sort of core functions for every AR type of use case, not just a particular app. It wasn't about content. It wasn't about the user experience. This is just to enable it. And so that, that started to feel like to us to look more like an operating system in that if you define an operating system as you know, the APIs that the application calls, if you look at say Windows, you know, the operating system isn't the GUI, it isn't the, you know, the menus and the buttons and everything. It's actually the Win32 API stack. That's what all the applications call. And that was kind of, the Win32 stack was kind of superseded by Amazon AWS APIs. And that sort of enabled the cloud for all, you know, web and mobile applications to kind of live in the cloud. And we felt that a similar set of APIs was going to have to exist for spatial computing. You know, all these applications, whether it was a, a robot trying to do its job or a drone or an AR app or a self-driving autonomous vehicle, needed to be able to call APIs to say, what's that thing in front of me? You know, is, is there a, you know, am I on the road? Is that a person standing there? And these APIs to, you know, understand the real world, when you bundle them all together, it starts to look like an operating system for accessing the real world. 
And that was the, I think the vision, you know, that was the vision we have for uh, 6D and it still is the vision for you know, Niantic. And I think, you know, we, we called that the AR cloud at the time and that, that name kind of stuck. But the, um, you know, this idea of, a, of, a, of an operating system for the real world and those APIs was, was underpinning everything. And we felt that opportunity was going to be as big as Windows, as big as AWS. You know, someone was going to, someone was going to build a very, very big business on the back of these APIs. We hoped it was us. Yeah. Speaking of the, the businesses, you had announced a number of partnerships yep. with you know, big companies and small companies, and they're all taking the core technology that you started with, and they were you know, trying to explore different use cases that benefited from this technology. What did you learn about building 3D maps of the real world from all of these partners and all these experiments? A whole bunch of things. Uh, there's probably three, three things that we learned. Two, we were Two we were kind of right about and one we were wrong about. So one of the things we were right about was that private spaces are the spaces that matter, whether that's something that's you know, inside a business, an office, a factory, something like that, or inside your home. And, you know, that was, you know, that sort of um, hypothesis was built on just looking at where we use our mobile phones, thinking that if AR is going to, you know, become a phone-like you know, usage pattern that we, we eventually do. We'll probably use our glasses in the same places we use our phones. And you know, 90% of the time we use our phones, it's in our home or in our place of work. So it's rarely out in public. Compared to, say, driving a car, you know, which is always in public. So the ability to capture and make available private spaces was always a priority for everything we did. And all that technology was uniquely built to be completely private. And that was something that was kind of at odds to what the rest of the, the rest of it was like, oh, we're going to send drones, we're going to map the whole world, we're going to build out Apple Maps or Google Maps. And all of those mapping competitors were all, you know, based around public spaces, mapping public areas. So that was one thing we were right about. The other thing I believe we are right about, uh, particularly at least for a startup, was the go-to-market strategy was, you know, the common wisdom is that if you want to build a platform, you build a product and then you make the product successful and then you open it up to be a platform. You don't start with the platform and hope people figure out what to do with it. And that works. I think, you know, that's, that's definitely great advice. However, for AR, we're entering a new medium and there's an entire like horizontal technology stack that needs to be built. It's incredibly expensive. And a single use case application, you know, probably you know, even the risk in that use case working makes it very uneconomical to go with that build a product and then build all the tech behind it. So what I'd learned was that the way to go about this is sort of take a in-between approach in that we knew that building the technology stack was incredibly difficult problem. And we knew that we had a bunch of hypotheses around particular use cases. And so what we did was we, we sort of kind of selected, it was a bit of a, obviously a mutual selection, but we looked for companies that were a really good fit for AR with their use case, but that really understood their use case and how to build the application for their use case. And so we partnered with them very closely and said, look, we will build the technology to enable your app if you build the app on top of our technology. And you know, Airbnb was a, a perfect example of that in that 
they had the ability to build the app. They had a really clear use case of capturing the space, um, but they didn't have the ability to build the technology behind it. And so that was that was one where that just we didn't go out and say, hey, we're going to be a, a Matterport competitor and build the entire stack to do that, so that we're going to build the technology and partner with Airbnb. And there were you know smaller companies and some larger ones that were you know we you know didn't get across the we sort of got down the road, but we never got to the finish line yet. That you know were based on that same go-to-market approach, and that you know was definitely the right the right way to go. The the thing we were wrong about in 60 was we believed that developers were the right customer to target. Hmm. And what we learned there is that developers were the ones that understood the problem. They understood what we'd solved, um, but they had they didn't have any money, and they didn't have like an existing budget that was building. AR apps that they could push onto 6D. The budgets were controlled by product managers, and product managers didn't really understand the technology that well. They need to see something and, and try it. And so that sort of meant we we struggled to get you know a lot of repeatable, you know, rapid growth um, in in our in our go-to-market strategy. So it ended up taking like six to nine months, you know, to get a big customer landed and on board and and that was um you know that that was something we just were wrong on and i think what affected you know you know it was one of the factors that ultimately um affected our decision to sell you know it's just the the growth rate that you know we, we saw the amount of investment that the large platforms were making into the ar cloud you know, we've done a great job in, in telling the world that the AR cloud was important and they're investing rapidly we saw that just hardware and things were taking longer so the you know the distribution you know go the ability to distribute an app very rapidly was, was still a way off and you know with a whole bunch of high profile failures you know, investors weren't just going to drop you know 50 million dollars into a you know into a hope so we knew that we needed to to have that rapid growth over the next 12 to 18 months and, and it, was, it was kind of difficult to see from the market how we were going to achieve that. Yeah, I'd love to dig into each of those three things that you talked about. The importance of privacy, both privately, both for, for private citizens as well as businesses, this notion of the importance of the use case and partnering really carefully in kind of this um, symbiotic approach to building out both the underlying technology as well as the, the underlying full stack use case. And then this last part about targeting developers versus the alternative, but may- maybe starting a bit on the privacy stuff. Yeah. As you think about privacy, right? Now, now 60 is part of a larger company, but Niantic even itself is still tiny compared to yep. the, the mega companies out there, right? The Apple and Google, as you noted, both released their, their SDKs. Yep. Microsoft has announced their version of Cloud Anchors. How does the, the risk or the challenges of mapping these private places fit with the the approach or the perspective of these giants who have all announced some attempt to build directionally something similar. Yeah. So, you know, my big lesson, not lesson, but the thing, I was kind of aware of this going in, but, but privacy is one of these um, religious topics for a lot of people, kind of like standards bodies or open source or something. And you've got to kind of get rid of that religion in that because people sort of get all worked up about abstract privacy concepts that when it comes to how is that idea actually implemented in, inside a particular product, there's no connection, right? It's just, I just want idealism or I want, you know, something that, so 
how we sort of approached it was there's no ability for the general public to accept subtlety or shades of grey when it comes to privacy. You know, we could try and educate people as to how things work and, you know, what the data really is and which bits of data matter and which bits don't, but no one gets it. They just cannot get their head around, you know, anything beyond black and white. So what we what we kind of accepted, and this was sort of right at the end of, you know, just, just sort of in that, we were even negotiating with Niantic as we are kind of figuring this out, was that just accepting that, you need to just completely give complete control of the data. The, the cap, if, if you capture data somewhere, you believe, rightly or wrongly, that that's your data and you should own it and no one else should be allowed to have it or see it or do anything with it. Um, that's just people's perception right now. And companies even 100x more so, you know. So, yeah, you just need to, to roll with that and say, okay, anything you can, you know, we, we were sort of going to move down the path of 6D of you know, anything you capture is going to be owned and controlled by you and you can choose which applications have access to that data, you know, or not third-party applications. So, so that was kind of the big, the big lesson there. And, and for, for a long time, we, you know, we tried to educate people about, hey, this is how we do it, ours is different to theirs. No one cared. You know, they, they just couldn't understand it. You know, they was trying to articulate two different highly technical approaches to a, to a problem that was purely abstract to the customer. So, um, yeah, that was, so now when, whenever anyone wants to talk about privacy or gets sort of, you know, we're going to panel on privacy for AR, I, I, just, I just have very little interest in, in getting involved because nearly all of those conversations are so abstract and they're not actually talking about an actual product that people you know people use and then get afraid or comfortable the bottom line here is that private spaces are private that is the mindset of the customer whether it's a home or a business and they don't well, want they don't understand what that means they don't understand it but there's this perception that i don't yeah. want anybody else to see inside of my space this is my space that's basically what i can there's a perception that the, the, the people can see inside my private space, uh, what I, you know, my, my space that I perceive as private. And, you know, you sort of get into, but, you know, but you're like a tenant. The landlord has access to it. Nope, doesn't matter. It's my space, you know. Yeah, so that's, that's the sort of reality of where, where the market is at. And I think that, you know, my, my I, I don't know how this will play out, but, but definitely companies that are, you know, bringing image data up to the cloud, I mean, the other, I guess the other thing that's tied in with this is that, interestingly, I think small companies have a big advantage, you know, big first mover advantage here because of the legislative risk that Apple, Facebook, Google, like, I mean, imagine Niantic and Facebook came up with exactly the same technology, exactly the same use case, and, you know, Niantic, you know, play, play Pokemon and Niantic captures and hosts and puts it on their cloud, a nice map of your home. And how would you feel about that versus Facebook doing exactly the same thing? And the minute Facebook announced that, there'd be like lawsuits all over the whole world, you know, like absolutely going nuts over, over their, you know, their reputation where, you know, smaller companies kind of, I mean, definitely with 6D, we, were, we knew we were too small to sue. 
So we could we could sort of go into these gray areas and kind of we knew we had an opportunity to figure this stuff out without really carrying the legislation or a, or a legal risk of um, being sued out of existence where where the big platforms definitely have that problem. Yeah. You think Niantic is still small enough that they get that benefit of the doubt? Um, I, I don't think Niantic, I mean, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of the product managers there at Niantic, but I think Niantic is wouldn't take that risk anyway. They are very, very cognizant of, you know, the, the fact that their user base is, you know, off, you know largely younger, you know, younger people, kids, and they wouldn't even take the, you know, take the risk on that basis. That, that trust is too important to them. But I think they, they could take the risk and it would be a risk that they could take that Facebook couldn't take, you know, in, in that sense. Yeah. I'm just talking about this notion of privacy and the utility of a map, because fundamentally you're trying to, as you noted, understand the physical world in order to overlay this digital information most effectively on top of that. At some basic level, that's just understanding the geometry, and then it's the distinctness between each piece of geometry, and then having some understanding of what each of those pieces of geometry is or does, right? There's these various levels to this, but it's a map at one level of thinking. And the challenge of building a map is you have to build the map before you can use the map. And one of the things that I loved about the 60 approach and the technology was that you allowed people with the phone they had already in their pocket to take that device and you know leverage the mobile camera on it to create some sort of map. But yep. whenever I think about a, a mapping problem, there's always this cold start problem. Yep. Like how how do you build a relevantly sized, big enough map in order to be useful? How, how did you kind of think about that at 60? Well, exactly like you said, we, we just said um, you shouldn't need a map to start. Um, you should just it should just build as you go, and you know that approach. You know, Apple's taking that approach with their lidar sensors and things, and, and the, no one no one is going to at least not you know in, in the first decade I guess is going to um, think, huh, one day you know I'll want to play Pokemon in this in my living room, so I'm going to go and build and you know spend you know quite some time building like a really good map of my living room, then I'm going to put it somewhere where it's saved and it's always going to be ready and available for some future app that may come along. It's just, you know, it's just nonsense. No one's going to do that. At the same time, no app builder is going to go, oh, I'm going to build like a really good app for people's living rooms. All they need is the map of their living room and then my app, my game is going to be fantastic. Now, that's never going to happen either. So both have to happen at the same time. You have to be able to, the, the application developer have to have the confidence that they can build an app for your living room and know that as you play that app, as you play that game, the map is going to get built in the background invisibly to the user. And that was kind of the, you know, that was back in whatever, 2017, 18. That was one of those science fiction things that I, I knew needed to be there, but it just was impossible to, that, that technology didn't exist. And it was when I met Victor, he said, well, no, it all runs in real time and you can still have headroom on the device to run other applications. I was like, this is, you know, this is the solution to this this problem of chicken chicken and egg cold start problem. Build an app map as you need the map. How does Apple's incorporation of LiDAR affect the work that you were doing, given that you were really oh, focused on the RGB? Just makes it better. I mean, again, we you know we knew all along. Six uh, D was built on you know an algorithm called Infinitam out of Oxford. Infinitam was originally built for depth cameras, you know, mm. any, any type of depth camera. And basically, the, you basically had a module that was like this module would provide a, a depth frame to the 
the pipeline. And that module could be a depth camera piece of hardware or, you know, the, the one we launched with was, it was a piece of software that, that got a depth frame out of the mono camera. And so um, we were completely independent and what we benefited from was the quality of that depth frame. The, the more that each pixel in that depth frame perfectly matched the ground truth of the, of the actual physical space, the better everything was. And so Apple or whoever, you know, making a depth sensor available that serves up a nice high quality depth frame just improve, you know, improves the input to the pipeline and so everything in the pipeline gets better. And so, you know, we knew that sensor was coming for about 18 months before, before it shipped. And, you know, we knew that we could fuse, you know, the, the module giving an RGB depth frame, you know, combine it with the LiDAR frame and get something even better again. And you could still do it all in real time over infinitely large areas, aggregate those and stitch them all together automatically in the cloud, all that stuff that the pipeline delivers after you get that frame from the sensor. So we were, we were sort of bullish. It was just going to make 3D far more, um, you know, just, just common and understood and Apple was going to market the hell out of it. So it wasn't, definitely wasn't anything that worried us. It was just, you know, it was just a, a plus. It was like yeah. getting a better CPU or better, better neural net engines. Yeah. You noted that developers weren't maybe the right initial target customer, yeah. especially as you're selling into an enterprise entity. There are, it's not the same person who is evaluating, understanding the problem and making the decision to buy it and actually has the money to fund it and all those sorts of things. As you think back through what you did versus maybe what you should have done, what, what would have been a better approach to get the sort of momentum that you were hoping to get? Yeah, well, there were two, two approaches that, that could, have, could have paid off. One was just to just recognize that developers are, you know, just don't have the budget and, and we provide more support for them. You know, so you're seeing that with you know, Facebook or funding developers to build stuff. You know, we could have taken that approach. We could have invested, you know, a ton of money more into just developer education, um, you know, developer evangelism, better tools, you know, pushed harder into integration with you know, the Unity and Unreals of the world and just gone all in on, you know, just, just helping lift the entire developer, you know, industry. Risk of that approach was that we were still dependent on some third parties, you know, like Unity, you know, you know, they needed something like their Mars tool. Unreal was definitely uninterested in, in um, mobile and AR back then. And so that approach, we sort of thought, look, that's going to mean pretty much us lifting the entire market where there's no, you know, why would it, you know, VC would have to write a very big check just in belief that, that some application would emerge. And so that, that was, um, yeah, that was, that was, again, a, a risky path for an investor to, to go down. The other approach was uh, to realize, look, there's, the product managers have got budget. They just need to understand this and they're not going to pay their, you know, pay an agency to build a prototype to, so the product manager can sell it internally to get the real app. So for us, the, the path we were heading down was to actually build some prototype apps of our own, more than prototype, like lightweight products, and put them in the market and really use them as a way for product managers to, to get budget to roll this out. 
So the first one we were, we were doing was, was basically replicating what Airbnb had built in-house and make that available to everyone who has a use for scanning properties. You know, insurance estimation, you know, floor plan and sizing estimates, you know, inventories of places, all sorts of, you know, there was like 10 or 15 specific use cases for that vertical. That if we had started that approach from the beginning, I think we would have been, um, I don't know where it would have been, but that, that approach I think felt like lower risk and there was there was actual real revenue there from, from enterprises. Real revenue there in, in what regard? In terms of building out kind of a more generic set of capabilities based on your technology? Yeah, we would then sell that application. You know, it could have been done as like either they just use it as is and just pay us you know, like, like Slack or something like that type of enterprise go-to-market model where you push it out and people use it and they pay you for you know, some sort of usage fee. We could have done it as a white label where we just go and say, okay, now it's only like 30 grand and we'll customize this completely and integrate it with your you know, backend systems and brand it the way you want. Or it could have just been used as a straight up prototype to, for them to then build their own custom application around it. You know, they, they could unlock their internal business case. Um, we never got far enough to sort of explore those sort of fine-tuning details. But as we started showing the app to customers, it was just immediately, you know, the, the entire, all the conversations we're having just completely changed very quickly. It went from, I don't quite understand what this is going to do for me to, oh, can you add this feature and this feature and this feature? And then it's, yeah, we can, we can really see how it is. Hmm. So based on that sort of response you got as you began to experiment with building more vertically beyond just the core-based technology, but to include kind of a, an end application, do you think that that initial unit of value was the right one to start with? I guess this is kind of a, an extension. Did you go to market too early, right? Or, or was there, uh, should you have, not that you ever really know, unless you actually yeah, played I, out, I kind of waited and actually built that full vertical stack within these certain an area or a couple of different areas? What was that initial unit of value that you think the market really needed to see? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. If we hadn't have gone to market early, we wouldn't have learned what we learned. We were very committed, you know, and from a values point of view, to be very public and open with what we were doing. We, um, you know, one thing I learned about AR is, I, you know, I probably know as much as anyone on earth about the technology and the use cases and the market and all that stuff. But um, I didn't know, like, I, and I thought, if I don't know, who does? So we need to actually not just believe we've got the answers and bunker down and sort of build based on our own, you know, self-belief. But we need to actually get out there and really learn from, from the market. And that, you know, that commitment to, you know, not do concept videos and not do, you know, like hype things up really really was, was smart in terms of going to market and just getting real feedback from what people were trying to do. I think we could have, you know, abandoned developers much sooner than we did. You know, we probably spent a year just really trying to figure this out around how do we target developers but help them get their use case to market, you know, which verticals are the right ones to go after, you know, how do we stay you know, horizontal, that, that probably took us long, you know, that, that was probably where we burned through runway and time and things, figuring that out. But I don't think we would have figured it out if we just stayed, if we hadn't released, you know, if we hadn't been public about what we were doing. 
So you, you needed that insight that the market was giving, the feedback the market was giving you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Totally. Was, there, was there a particular piece of information that you were just missing in that feedback that would have, you know, if you'd played it back again, you'd have changed course sooner? Yeah, the worst thing that happened to us, ironically, was Airbnb. You know, we thought they actually turned out to be a false positive. You know, we, we sort of had a great, man, they were like a perfect customer in so many, so many aspects. And we thought, awesome, we've, we've won this, this, you know, landed this potential whale here and let's go get more of those. And there were no more of those. They were actually very unique in their, you know, basically in their understanding of the problem and in their capability of building apps in-house. Everyone else we spoke to didn't have the ability to build an app in-house, didn't really understand or have the pain point, you know, or at least, you know, there's like a long education process around that. So, yeah, ironically, that, that success we had with Airbnb was, you know, it was something that hurt us, you know, over time. Hmm. That's, uh, that's a dangerous trap, I guess. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like a trap at all. I guess it's a honey trap. Yeah, I just think it didn't feel like a trap, but we thought we were, we thought we were succeeding. But it was actually, you know, it led us down a, a path that you know, they were they were a one off, not not a not a first of many. Yeah. How, if you were to give advice to another entrepreneur, or to give your as you, you know, embark on whatever's next, how do you better judge whether the signal is representative of real interest that applies more broadly across the market, versus something that only makes sense for that one that one customer? It's a, truly a not, an anomaly. I mean, what I'd be looking for next time is. The second sale should happen pretty quickly after the first one. It should be pretty much the same thing. And if you don't get that second sale quickly, uh, like within a month or something, you've you've probably got you know a false positive there. Yeah, that's a that's a difficult one. If you can't go out and sell it again to someone similar to their competitor or, or a similar type of company, then you're missing something. Yeah, you'd noted you kind of touched a bit on the use case here, which is to to map and understand all of these private places, right? They're, they're in the business of marketing private places. Mm-hmm. And the better the prospective acquirer, the better prospective customer understands that space, the more comfortable they will be in making that decision and committing, right? Whatever that happens to be, this is my, my interpretation of what might be going through their minds. But what was the, the pain that Airbnb specifically was feeling that they wanted to use 6D to solve? It was basically onboarding their properties. They, they needed to, they had that sort of, two similar problems. One was when a host signs up to put their property on Airbnb, they have to like fill out a checklist and, and get some photos and things. And lots and lots of the time that is either incomplete or misrepresentation of the, of the property. And Airbnb just, how do they, you know, for their high-end homes, they were sending people out, like contractors out to, to manually do that. And it ended up, you know, they, they could do like tens of thousands of homes a year, but they needed to get to millions. And so the only way they could do that was for the host to do it themselves. And they had, you know, they, again, they'd, they'd come to understanding that the only really foolproof or fraudproof way was that it's a 3D scan and it's done inside the Airbnb app, not using third-party apps. So Airbnb can control it, timestamp it, whatever, watermark it as well as get completeness. You know, if, if you take photos of your house, maybe you left off the dodgy bedroom or maybe you, um, you know, missed a bit and 
you said it's three bedroom, but there's only photos of two bedrooms. So, you know, where's the, where's the mistake there? Where a 3D scan, you can just look at it and go, yep, that's, there's nothing missing here. You've got all the walls go all the way around the outside. So that was, that was a big problem. And that problem just got bigger, you know, when Airbnb went through some fraud things and they were scaling up to do the Japanese Olympics and provide all the housing for that. So that was their use case. You know, everyone assumed that the use case was Matterport style, give me a, a nice 3D model and I can use that to give virtual walkthroughs of the property and so people can preview the property before, like, like a, it's a marketing asset. But Airbnb tested all of that stuff, you know, and said that giving people a 3D walkthrough reduces conversions. Hmm. Like less people will rent your property if you put that up there because you need to sell the dream. It's too close to reality. <laughs> people are seeing too much of the reality. Yeah, you need, yeah you're better off getting your house like staged nicely and take some professional well-lit photos and people will, you know, that'll work. Yeah, but they want to make sure that it wasn't being misrepresented fundamentally. That was it. And, and just on board it, you know, at scale. At scale. You know, they wanted yeah. to be able to get millions on. So yeah. That was, that was it. Are there, are there other use cases amongst these early partners that you really loved, you thought were really just great representations of what oh, the market loved all the use cases. That was, that was <laughs> kind of a problem. Like, you can't, you couldn't really, um, you know, people go, what's the killer app for AR? And there, is, there is none. It's going to be the same things we do already on our phones. It's communicating. It's entertaining themselves. It's getting information about things. It's being a bit more productive or a bit more efficient in our lives. And these are the use cases that people like. And try and say which one of those is the one that matters more than the others is um, there, there is no answer to that. So you really, you know, we just needed to, Instead of, you know, we probably had this set of ones that were pretty obvious, you know, like scanning a property, but then it was a case of uh, finding the customer who really had that insight as to, okay, and then for instance with Airbnb, what we learned was that it's, it's not a matter of a nice photorealistic model, it's a matter of what, what information can we extract from this 3D understanding of the space. You know, for instance, completeness of the scan is, is one thing. Mm. from that or you know um scale metric scale you know for the accurate size and just understanding from them that what we thought mattered about the use case wasn't actually what mattered to the customer and you know i think you know i believe if we had have gone and landed a big gaming customer for instance we had have landed i don't know someone building world of warcraft in the real world or Epic and doing Fortnite in the real world, you know, we would have learned a lot about gaming, what, what 3D scans mean for gaming. It's probably different to what we would have assumed. Um, sure. Yeah. So as you were entering 2020, you were faced with this choice of raising more money or pursuing an acquisition. What was going through your mind at the time? How, how did you think through that decision? Yeah, there's a third option as well, which was just to basically pivot into just revenue, entirely focused on revenue. And that was largely, you know, large enterprise, government, military type contracts, which were out there. That was, you know, could have, we could have, it's never easy, but we could have definitely got to profitability within a, within a few months if we went all in on that approach. So we had these three, three options in front of us. One was, you know, tweak our go-to-market and build some sort of app, enterprise or consumer, sell, or, or just, you know, basically bootstrap by, by going after revenue. 
And yeah, there's a lot of debate you know, inside the company at our board meetings uh, as to which was the right approach. And that comes down to what's the market telling you? What does the team want to do? You know, what is what is the reality of some of these options out there? What's realistic? And then, like personally, you know, what what matters? You know, what 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 do I want to do with my life? What does Victor want to do with his life? And um, the approach that I took, which in hindsight I think is the right approach, even though it wasn't clear at the time, and there's a lot of a lot of very you know, strong opinions viewed that you should just focus on one was, was I tried to do all of them at the same time. And I, I did everything I could to find, you know, big revenue opportunities like, like material. Like there's nothing like finding a few hundred grand in revenue was going to make no difference to our situation. It's like, are there 2 million, 5 million projects that are that we can close, you know? And we did, we found some of those. Are there um, really are there investors who are willing to, to back the vision that we that we want to build out? And that meant, you know, a large A round check. You know, getting we could have easily raised enough to stay alive for going forward. You know, raise another three, four, five million dollars. But that, you know, Nico Bonatzis, our board member, he just said it's like that's just basically like flipping another card, playing poker. Like all you're doing is staying in the game. You're not really winning or losing. And it, all that meant was it would have, we would have got 18 months down the road and see where things are. You know, it wasn't a real, you know, it wasn't a real decisive play one way or another. So we needed to get a decisive play out of an investment. But we needed to look at an exit. And, you know, that was, that was challenging. There'd been a lot of, everyone was interested in us. The terms were all over the place, you know, in terms of the, the type of interest. And um, there, yeah, you know, it was, was a case of, look, do we want to take an exit just for the sake of taking an exit or do we actually, you know, would, would we rather bootstrap or we just take an aqua hire that no one really gets anything out of it? And those type of debates were, you know, always ongoing. So, so yeah, you know, in, in all of that, my takeaway was, I mean, I kind of, you kind of know this, is that you really have to have, more than one option, you know, whatever that is. And so we didn't have like three, we didn't out the gate have like three competitive bidders, you know, for what we were doing for an exit. But we had, you know, we had a bootstrap option that was realistic. You know, we had a, some funding that was realistic, wasn't, wasn't awesome. And then we had, you know, some interest around M&A. And I spent six months really just trying to, I mean, not, not quite play them off against each other, but, but try and just kind of, lift each of those to become more and more real till it was clear that this was the the best of the realistic options the path of acquisition being the which turned out to be an acquisition option yeah yeah, yeah. if if Niantic's offer had been different and if one of these revenue opportunities had been you know better we probably would have gone that that path you know or if or if a vc had stepped up and said yep i believe in this i want to i want to commit in a real way, we, we probably would have gone that path. So, but it was more a matter of being able to look, you know, an acquirer in the eye and say, "No, we're, we've got we've got another alternative to this this deal you're putting in front of us because we that deal you're putting in front of us, there's nothing really in it for us." And so, so no, thank you. 
In, in terms of being the CEO of a company that is faced with these sorts of questions, when is the right time to really begin to recognize that you have to pick a path, right? And, that, and the path that you have to pick is going to be a little bit different than the one you're currently on. How, mu how much before you run out of money? Yeah, so in, in with Deco, I, I believed in my vision too much. And we eventually, you know, gradually just petered out, you know, and, and ran out of money. And that was, I said, I'm never going to go through that again. I'm never going to, you know, struggle like that to stay alive when we should have pulled the pin, you know, before. So the other thing I think that was great was having Nico on our board, basically having a, you know, a VC from a billion-dollar tier one fund. His, you know, his perspective or what he, you know, what, what GC considers a success is, um, you know, very different to what a couple of angel investors might, might consider. So, so he was able to very clearly go, look, you guys need to be on this trajectory if you're not on that trajectory, you're going to be like, you know, you're going to be like the walking dead and you don't want to be in the walking dead. And, and I'd, I'd been that in the past. So I, I kind of, I kind of didn't want to be the walking dead and, and just, but just having sort of an objective person being able to say, you know, be aware that if you do go down this path, 18 months from now, you could have just diluted yourself 20%, given 18 months for all the M&A options to catch up to you. And you don't really know, you know, you're not, you're not so confident that you're going to have the growth. So when we looked at sort of all the different scenarios of, of where the, you know, where 18 months down the road could lead to, and you sort of go, well, nine out of 10 of those scenarios lead us to being in a, a probably worse place than we are now. It makes sense to take the deal on the table because at least that you can, you take a win you reset the clock, you can go and start something new. And um, that, was, that was kind of the, the process that we went through. And it was, I think it was, I was only able to do that because I'd not done it and I'd made the mistake of not doing that in the past. Yeah, so that message resonated with you. And were those conversations starting six months out, nine months out? Did you kind of think about? Yeah, nine months out. Like they're always, like always. always. <laughs> they, were never, they were never not happening. And but it really got serious, you know, Thanksgiving last year. That was when that was when Facebook sort of we had a conversation with with one of their one of their leaders there and they were like, Yeah, we'd be we'd we'd be interested in, you know, you joining Facebook and you know, I for the first time I came back and said, Yeah, we'd be we'd be seriously interested in taking an offer. And that kind of prompted, sort of kicked off everyone's like, Okay, it's all real now, it's not just like optionality, it's actually now. You gotta, you know, work to an outcome. As you had these conversations with potential acquirers, what was the narrative that you were presenting to them, and, and kind of how did you work through the story you were selling? What is it that you were selling to them? I guess in, in their minds. Yeah, well, this was this was something I, I didn't really appreciate, you know, until after the, we got into the the deal, which was by the time. You get to sell the company. You 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 done. You, you, your narrative of, was set in place like twelve months ago, and you pretty much got to sell what you've always been, you know, representing yourself as. We had done an exceptionally good job of of two things. You know, one was building like, oh my god, technology that that like the smartest people in the industry could not understand how we did this. So we'd blown away like the the researchers, the engineers, all those sort of people. 
that, that deeply understood how difficult this was. And we've done a really good job of articulating why this is going to be important, you know, in terms of this AR cloud idea and the AR cloud being the future of everything. So what we, what we didn't do a good job of, you know, similar to with our customers, is connecting with the product managers at the potential acquirers. And they didn't understand exactly why our technology, you know, connected to this AR cloud. They got the concept of the AR cloud. They looked at some weird little technology with some balls bouncing off desk chairs and things, but they, they couldn't really connect those two things together. So, so when it came time to, to you know, try and sell, so you're not really selling. You never sell a company. You, you, you basically ask to be bought. Um, that's it's nearly always, you know, someone always tries to buy you. And what, what had happened, you know, the last year or so is that a lot of the t- there'd been enough time for the execs and product managers to go, yes, we need an AR cloud strategy. We need a 3D map of the world. Um, that had sort of churned through and turned into product roadmaps. And, you know, all of them had their own reason as to what, why they needed it, but they all knew they needed it. And then it sort of fallen on the engineering teams to build it. And they were like, well, hang on, we don't have, we can't hire the engineers. We don't really know how to build this IP. All these people are busy doing different things. So we, you know, 6D was really a, a means for them to accelerate their, their roadmap you know, or, or even deliver on their roadmap. And so we were being bought for, for that, that value. Which is your accelerating product roadmap. We, there's a set of things we decide we need to do, and if we buy these guys, we'll get there a little bit faster. Yep, or, or we'll get there at all. We'll get there at all. Some of these companies didn't have the in-house ability to do it. So then they went, well, what's that worth to us? And they were like, well, that's worth like X dollars to our, you know, our engineering efforts. And that was, that was great. Because we'd done a really good job at, at those other two things, it meant that you know, we were able to get a sale and we were able to get a, get a, a win you know, out of that. But... One thing I did learn was that the way engine, like if you were able to have the product managers inspired, their maths is very different because they're saying, oh, wow, we've found a market opportunity here that's worth a you know, billion dollars in the next 12 months. Somehow, how do we capture you know, 30% of that? And then if they can say, oh, wow, we need this company because they are already on track to capture some section of that market and we can, we can accelerate that, they can justify paying like three, four, five X what the engineering guys pay uh, for the same thing, you know, the same, same startup. So, yeah, definitely that was, that was a big, you know, lesson that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not upset in any way, but I sort of go, wow, if we could have, if we could have like 12 months of ago, positioned ourselves differently and sort of told a different narrative around what 60 does that was aimed at product managers, we may have, you know, we may have got a, a, a sort of multiple of the exit that we did. Yeah. This is the second bucket, which is you're unlocking market opportunity. It's, it's a sales opportunity. It's not simply getting faster to some piece of product. Is connecting yeah. the dots for them and saying, okay, with this, we now have unlocked this massive new market opportunity. Yes. And we're going to trade uh, a portion of that anticipated value yep. 
to yep. that startup in exchange for having this ability. And so that, exactly. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I imagine that there might be a third bucket, which is that you have unlocked and you've demonstrated, you validated at some, to some level that this market opportunity is real. Yeah. And, uh, and, and there's real growth behind what you're doing. And you kind of have enough of that market side of validation that they're maybe willing to share a larger percentage of what they imagine they could get. Oh, totally. I mean, that's, yeah. the, that's the difference. Like if, if you're a startup, uh, you know, I don't know, like a, like a 15 person company. And if you're selling to the engineering teams, you know, you'll, you'll, geez, you, you, you won't get a hundred million. You, it'll be anything from like $1 to tens of millions, you know, in the mid, mid high tens of millions. If a product manager or even a, you know, like a VP of product um, believes that you have unlocked a, a new market and you're actually on track to win that market, not just, you know, to sort of prove it exists, but you're actually winning it. That's how Oculus, Instagram, you know, those WhatsApp type of, type of multi-billion dollar acquisitions or quite small companies happen. And um, yeah, yeah. I mean, most of them obviously happen in the 100, 200 million range, but it's, it's certainly a, a sort of multiple of what you get from an engineering manager. Sure. But even on this notion of, of without any difference in the amount of traction that you've had at 60.ai or another equivalent sort of startup, just the narrative difference, just how you communicate yeah. the value of what you've created can have a, a big impact in the overall outcome. But that narrative, it's got to be more than just like me talking. Sure. Doing some, it's got to actually be reflected in product, reflected in like, you know, customer feedback or enthusiasm, you know, not necessarily revenue, but sort of the whole company needs to back that narrative. But it's really same team, same results, same technology, same everything, just a, um, a different position. And, and yeah, there's a, there's a much better outcome possible. You'd noted that the, the time to, to have this conversation, to present this sort of narrative is way before you get into the nitty gritty of whether or not it makes sense to do the acquisition. Totally. Yeah, yeah, way before anyone even approaches you for, uh, for an exit. Yeah, so you start presenting that narrative. When's the right time to start having these sorts of conversations with potential acquirers? We had our first conversation with Niantic before we incorporated the company in 2000. It was just me and Victor, and we said, yeah, we should probably do a company around this. And I, I met a, a friend who, who knew, you know, um, John Henke, and was just telling him my thoughts around what we, what we intend to do. And he's like, you should talk to us. And so, you know, that first conversation, we, we literally hadn't even incorporated the company. And it was just me and Victor intending to incorporate it. So you can't start early enough. Yeah, <laughs> that's as early as it gets. Is, is, that, is that the right time? Like you basically always, as the startup CEO, you always kind of have this in the back of your mind that you need to have these relationships with potential acquirers. Yeah, definitely something like that. Like, like you hear founders or whatever, investors say, you know, you shouldn't you know, burn the boats, don't sell, you know, just focus on growing this big company. And that's, that's right as a, as a company approach. But as the founder and CEO, I need to be talking with everybody all the time. And I may not tell the rest of the company you know, about those conversations. They just stay at the, at the board level. But it's, it's always having that, that optionality in that if an investor comes along and says, or whatever, you go out to raise a round and you get three or four bids that are all valuing you at X, and you can sit down and go, hey, but look, Apple's just offered me 2X. Uh, so screw you guys. I'm, I'm going to. Like this valuation, you know, that having that 
fall back. At the same time, like you might be having these acquirers and Apple's interested and they're like saying, oh, we'll offer you, you know, offer you why. And you go, but look, I've, you know, we're, we're doing a fundraising process and I've now got, you know, term sheets at, at 3Y. So, you know, having those conversations with all the time always means you've got a good read on your market value and how you're being valued and why you're being valued. And it's, yeah, you know, and then obviously when the time comes that you do want to pull the pin and raise money or sell, you know, you've got a lot of the, the ground has already been prepared. Yeah. And, and here you noted that there's so much power in having one, one seriously committed option. Yeah. What, what did you do after you got your first offer? Called everyone else and said, we've got an offer. <laughs> like, like, of course, you know, you, you obviously don't, you know, share any, any specifics, but you, yeah, you know, immediately you tell everyone else that, that we're in play. And, you know, I've talked to the board and the board's, you know, in the absence of any other offers, we intend to accept this. And, um, you know, there's always sort of uncertainty around that, like, you know, you're still negotiating and the board may accept or it may not, but, you know, you, you've got to be sincere in that if this conversation, you know, continues as it started, we intend to, we intend to accept the offer and fear of missing out is, is the biggest motivator for all these guys. Yeah. So you leverage that, that fear of missing out. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shamelessly. And did that, based on that fear, did it really change the conversations or the pace of the conversations with the other players? Because you, you didn't take the first offer, I guess. Yeah, entirely. And it was, you know, it was also because we'd been having these conversations. Like I said, like we had multiple conversations with Niantic over the, over the years and, and with everyone else. You know, all the major platforms knew me, knew, knew what Victor and, and Jeff and the engineering team had, had accomplished. You know, we were always kind of surprised at how high profile, you know, we were as a, as a small company. So, um, yeah, it was very quick. Like, again, it's like, hey, you know, whoever, you know, hey, whoever it was, you know, a, 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 you know, big company. Look, I know we've been talking, but look, it, it's real, actually. You know, we've got an offer from, you know, from a big social network and we're going to take it. And, you know, if, if, you know, we've talked about this on and off, but I'm, I'm telling you that now's the time. So let me know if you're interested or not. And um, that was, that was basically, yeah, literally how, how it went. Hmm. Why was Niantic specifically a good fit? A bunch of reasons. We, you know, I'd, I'd had a bit to do with, with John, like, like I said, and, and the team at Niantic. And so we obviously knew that, um, so it's common. It was partly it was culture and values, partly it was just belief in you know what they were doing and how they were going about it and their the opportunity there, and you know lastly it was kind of the deal and, and the terms. I think that you know definitely the the deals weren't you know offers too good to refuse. So I think if it's quite would have been quite easy for someone to come in over the top of Niantic like in a in a material way, and we would have drop Niantic and gone, gone with them. However, yeah, distasteful that, that may have been, depending on who it was. But, you know, everyone was kind of roughly, you know, Niantic was, was clearly the best offer, but, but the others were sort of in the ballpark. Then it was a case of we knew that we could have the biggest impact at Niantic as, a, as the 6D team, which was appealing to the whole, the whole team. We knew that Niantic had been, have always been very, values driven, you know, apart from maybe Apple, you know, they're, they're kind of two companies that were very clear on 
the values that they stand for, and that that mattered a lot to us. Um, obviously, a lot of value that we were bringing to these acquirers was in the team, and so you know everyone we wanted everyone to be as happy and committed as, as possible. We felt that certainly, like I said, Niantic is anything from ten to a hundred times smaller than than the other major players. So there's a lot of upside potential in, in Niantic. You know, the whole team got got stock as part of you know, cash and stock as part of the um, cash for the six DMT stock to, to retain at Niantic. So we wanted everyone to feel good about that. And we liked the fact that Niantic was a, a pure play in AR. And that was something that, you know, kind of a belief that we had was going to be a real advantage you know, going forward, that we knew these use cases around AR were, were not really... You don't really take Twitter on your phone and drop it in front of your glasses and now you've got an AR app. You need, you need a whole new sort of way of thinking and a new medium. And Niantic was the least encumbered, you know, with baggage in being able to, to do that. So, um, you know, all those things, they had enough scale. They, the, the type of scale that they brought was, you know, obviously Google, for instance, would have plugged 3D mapping into their Google Maps and navigation was the use case. Mm-hmm. Facebook and Snap were like Instagram and Snap Stories and about, you know, capturing social, you know, social media sharing. Niantic was about people out moving around the real world. And we had learned that if you want to build a map of the world, you don't want, like Instagram, everyone going to the same vantage point at some tourist spot and taking the same photo 10 million times. What you want is random people wandering around everywhere, capturing the world from all different points of view and, and you know, all sorts of places. And so we thought that was a bit of a something we understood that the rest of the world didn't really understand and that Niantic had. And um, we thought that was, you know, again, something that would help Niantic succeed. Yeah. So, yeah, all of that plus, you know, just liking the people, you know, was, was a good thing as well. Yeah. So one of the challenges, one of the peculiarities, maybe surprises, maybe that's the right way to say it, one of the surprises that I've experienced as both an entrepreneur, as an investor in these early stage companies is when there is an exit, sometimes there's a surprise about how much you actually end up with, you know, after all of the different priorities, different agreements, everybody who has a piece of the company, Yeah. you know, they, uh, (laughs) were there any surprises for you as you kind of actually went through all of the you know, waterfall out and kind of figure out exactly how much everybody gets paid. Were there any surprises there, lessons from there? Uh, I don't know how surprised I was, but, but definitely um, it, it played out the way everyone tells you and that, you know, there won't be much as much left over as you think. It's not a matter of going, oh, I'm a founder, I've got 20%, we sold for $100 million, so I, therefore I, I get $20 million to spend on, you know, on, on yachts and champagne. Yeah, it, it's something that... I think you need to really, as a founder, really be, um, what's what's the word, conscious of your cap table. And it's not just a matter of, oh, I'm I'm resisting dilution, you know, which is kind of the easy thing. Oh, I don't want to take their money because the valuation is too low and I'll be diluted too much. I think that's that's, um, the false, false way to think about it. But... You need to always be thinking as to how do I maximize the value of my equity in, in this company? And sometimes that means I bring on a particular investor because they're going to be able to increase the overall value and the dilution is, is more than worth it. Other times it's, no, we're going to 
just get revenue and we're going to have to put aside working on all this fun stuff because we're going to build this really boring, crappy stuff because we're going to get paid. You know, one, one lesson that, you know, a lot of investors, early stage investors talk about is just be wary of, of safes and convertible notes. And the reason for that, you know, I guess the reason they say is, oh, because you can't really do the conversion maths. You don't know. If you've got some percentage of your round in safes, you don't actually know how much equity you've got because it depends on some future valuation. And when you get that exit, or if you get that exit, or you get that A round or whatever it is, then all the maths get done and you're like, oh, is that all, is that all how it works, you know? And, I mean, one thing for us, you know, without going into the, the details of the deal, because every, you know, every safe or every note might have just one line or one little clause that affects the order in which the maths is done. And, for instance, our safes, I think most safes, you know, all of them are, you know, they're treated as debt. And so if you sell for, I don't know, $50 million, you've got $5 million in safes, they don't just convert and get split like everyone else does. They get their money back first. And so you don't actually sold your company for $45 million, not 50 And that type of maths is, you know, you can't really do it in advance. And so... The, the only way to avoid getting stung is to try and be as clean as possible and stick to priced equity, you know, whenever you can and just always know, you know, what, how much equity you've got and how much it's worth in the company. That was, that was sort of a, a big lesson. You know, the other one is raise as little as possible early on. That first, you know, 500K that you raise is, yeah, is really, really expensive. You know, in terms of your equity. So anything you can do to bootstrap for the first year, you know, I'm not saying bootstrap all the way through, but, but bootstrap until you're actually raising a, a real seed round. So you've got some evidence that here's a prototype and here's evidence customers want it. It, it should be possible, you know, in most cases to, to bootstrap your way to at least that point. Is the downside of the the money you raise early on really just the the equity hit that comes along with it, or are there other implications in how, how much you raise, how early? I think in terms of the maths, the equity maths, it's just the hit of, of dilution early on. I think what really matters early on is, is your investors, like we, and again, I think this was something that I did right, was I looked at investors as, as a recruiting exercise as much as a fundraising exercise. Like if I was recruiting a manager to my my team, you know, I'd, I'd go through a, a different process than you normally go through to, to choose an investor. You know, investors like, well, how much money are you offering me? You know, and what terms? When when can you wire it? But in the really early days, particularly if it's if it's one of the bigger checks in the round, that's a that's a person that you're bringing onto your team, and you should treat it that way. And so, I I would definitely over index. I mean, obviously. You need the money. If you need the money, get the money. You know that's that's job number one. But once you're confident that the money's there from you know from whoever, really think through like, do I want to work with this person? Because uh, you will be. And again, we worked out great for us with with you know, you know Nico, for instance. You know um, Oxford were fantastic, even though they were a small check. Their, their VC side was great. 
folks like Greg Castle were really good. Floodgate were fantastic. You know, these, these sort of, apart from GC, these were all very small checks. And, um, but they were people that were really, you know, really worked with us on, on everything we did. So that's, the, that's how I am thinking about raising money you know, early on now is it's, it's recruiting, not, not just getting dollars. Right. As you kind of went through this decision point that over the last six months or so prior to starting the company, and you were kind of weighing these different uh, options, right? Whether it was to be revenue-funded, more bootstrapping approach, or raising additional funds, another turn of the card, or finding an investor who really believed in the big vision, going to give you maybe different terms on that sort of VC investment, or finding the right acquirer. What did you learn about the implications of how much money you had raised? How does that affect your optionality? As you kind of go through those those points, yeah, that's yeah, that's a, that's a good question because it, it really did, and it was something that I kind of knew, like going in, um, like I knew it intellectually, um, but not not necessarily in in reality. And so the rule that I've read is that you to get a to get a, a clear like win that everyone will celebrate is you really need to sell for about ten x what you raise, the amount of money that you raise. Or the other similar maths is, is you need to raise for about 3x, the sell, sorry, for 3x, the valuation of your last round. So those rules of thumb really guided how we thought about an exit or fundraising or whatever, because we knew that if we're not going to hit those benchmarks, then we're going to be viewed as a below you know, below average company and, and then you kind of get left behind. So, for instance, we raised about $7 million in total, you know, over the life of the company at 60. And, you know, our valuation in our, you know, last round before we got acquired was around $20 million. And so that meant for us getting a, a clear, you know, clear home run type of outcome meant a sale in the, you know, 60, 70 million range. So we were always thinking, okay, is the AR market as a, as a whole, is it possible to sell a company for 60, 70 million in, in the AR market like this year or beginning of this year, end of last year? Versus if we had have raised, you know, a bigger, we could have raised a lot more money, another probably seven or eight million early on, and probably pushed our valuation up to say 40, 40, 50 in terms of money raised. Then to get an exit that everyone's really celebrating, you're looking at having to sell for, you know, 300 million, you know, and you look at the AR market and go, yeah, are any, are any AR companies getting bought for 300 million these days? Or is anyone even doing metrics that would get you that sort of valuation? And you know, the answer was no. So it was, you know, going backwards, it was kind of like, okay, we, if we raise more money, we're kind of pushing ourselves to now to get a win is, is almost impossible. We need to sort of be a complete outlier in, in the rest of the market. So I always approached, you know, fundraising as thinking, look, 12 months from now, 18 months from now, could the AI market support an exit of a company, you know, valued against those sort of maths. 
And um, so, yeah, we, we stayed, we raised less than we could have so that we sort of felt that if, if we did need to get an exit based on who we are today, it was, it was going to be possible, you know, or at least it was going to be within the, within the standard models of an acquirer. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, you know, that, that worked out for us. So there's certainly other, other startups in the AR space that raise more money and um, either they, they can't sell themselves or any sale would result in a, in a zero for the common stockholders. Zero for the common stockholders is never, uh, the, never the outcome the team was looking forward to. Not what you want. And sometimes the, the investors themselves, while they might get a little something, they are uh, not only not enthused, sometimes they make decisions that are against the interest of the common shareholders. So ironically, that was, um, that was another real benefit of having a um, the big fund on our cap table. And not just a big fund, but also someone who we you know, got on really well personally is um, the general catalyst point of view, like the, the exit that we were getting, they didn't care, you know, as, as a fund, you know, they didn't care. We could have sold for 5x what we did and it wouldn't have been a blip on their, you know, on their fund returns. So they were able just to say, look, we're going to support you as common stockholders and to get the best outcome for you guys, you know, because we've seen everything we've done, let's just, you know, make sure you get a win out of this and then you can, you can do whatever you want to do next. So that was very, very um, valuable, you know, to, to me personally, to Victor. And then in addition, you know, kind of because they didn't care, you know, if, when, when Niantic sort of started to push back on terms, there were a couple of times that the GC said, no, we're out. We'll just walk away and shut the whole thing down. We don't care. We're not going to expose the overall fund to this, this legal clause. Um, over a deal of this size. And, you know, sorry, Matt, sorry, Victor, it's nothing personal against you guys, you know, but, you know, the deal's off. And that, although that was, you know, never liked hearing that, but but it definitely helped us in terms of negotiating with, you know, with, with Niantic and, and then the other players as well, in that they couldn't quite push as hard because because General Callison didn't care, you know, from as a, as a fund. You know, right. Uh, definitely did everything he could to help us out and cared personally about everyone. But yeah, the numbers just didn't really matter to, to GC. Yeah. So they were truly a hard stop. Uh, they were the, the backstop in, in sort of- A couple of times they were. A couple of times it was, it was like they were, they were done. Like it was, yeah, yeah, they would have been off. So. <laughs> so much ultimately of the success of a startup has to do with the timing. Like is, is it the right idea at the right time in the market? Being too early, being too late, Never, you know, not as good as being just right. And it's always hard to know in advance, especially with sorts of the emerging technologies that we're talking about here in AR, yeah. to really time that right. Kind of in, in your assessment today, do you think that 60 was, what was the timing there? Too early, too late, just right? I definitely think there, there was a needle that we could have threaded timing-wise. And so, for instance, if I had ignored my advice and raised a lot more money back when we could have in you know, early 2019. So A, you know, go against, you know, basically burn the boats from an exit point of view and say, look, we, we're sort of setting ourselves up that, that there's no good exit option available for us. And then, you know, pick the correct go-to-market strategy, you know, like either building for that vertical or going all in on developers. I think that path might have 
played out, you know, and we'd be today, 60 would be, you know, I don't know, uh, 100, $200 million company with 50, 60 employees and doing, you know, 10 million in revenue. That, but it was a, you know, I'd have to sort of go back and, and sort of pick three or four th- you know, unintuitive things that would have had to go exactly right, you know, for us to end up there. So I think we were we were pretty close on the timing where like Deco was sort of a complete miss. I think if I did another company, you know, sort of starting, you know, now in the next six months, which which I am thinking about, I'd probably be even a bit more conservative in terms of betting on the future. I'd look much more closely at use cases that are now, you know, not use cases that need something to happen. Like I, if I've got a invent a bit of technology for the use case to be possible. I'm less enthusiastic about that type of company than something that says, you know, this use case today people will pay for. Just got to, you know, just got to um, deliver it based on sort of technology that's already there. Yeah, yeah. It's difficult in these these uh, points in the market, especially when this yeah. this one is so hardware dependent. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I wouldn't. I'd just go completely do something completely phone based. Yeah. This time, I wouldn't even consider headwear, eyewear. You know, but, but again, I mean, you can go completely the other direction. I mean, there's a there's a lot of people out there that are just like, oh, all we're doing is slapping landing pages up and analyzing metrics and buying Facebook ads and testing distribution channels, and they don't even have an idea. They're just like throwing mud up there and just watching the watching the metrics and then just going, oh, this one's working, so let's just kind of lean into that that's a that's sort of the other extreme versus like building some future technology that you believe is going to change the world and i think ultimately it comes down to who you are as to which of those approaches you know you're most comfortable with or most enjoy yeah as speaking of enjoyment right there's there's so much about being an entrepreneur Conceptually in advance, you think, oh, it's going to be amazing because everything is going to be going up and to the right. And it'll be just, you know, yeah, yeah, amazing growth opportunities for everybody involved. But the reality is it's much more of an emotional roller coaster. Yeah. For you throughout this experience, can you describe some of those, some of those extremes on this ride? Yeah. I mean, I've had a number of people that have asked me, like, why would you do that again? You know, it was, it was um, more than I expected. But um, for me... It's a combination. So there's the there's the roller coaster of the company itself, like the company's prospects, you know, at any point in time. And then there's your own personal, you know, hopes and dreams and life and everything, you know, gets in the way. So, you know, for me, I'd had I had a failed startup. I'd had basically a whole last ten years. I mean, it had been challenging personally, and so that I was personally going into sixty thinking I need a win here. Like I, I, I can't just take an, a billionaire or bust, you know, approach to this, this company. And, um, you know, while still having this big vision of not wanting just to start a, I don't know, email marketing company or something that was pretty low risk way to revenue. So the hard part is detaching your own emotional journey from the company's journey. And ironically, as a, as a founder, it's that attachment that, that brings the drive to push through that first sort of couple of years. You know? And so if you're completely detached and say, oh, this is just a job, I'm just a professional CEO managing this thing, it'll, it'll, never, it'll never succeed. So you somehow need to be 
attached and personally like irrationally driving it because it's who you are while at the same time going oh, i don't care what happens to this company i'm going to be okay i'm not going to let this affect me or give me sleepless nights or i'm not going to one night lay there thinking about you know what color ferrari or buy and then the next night wondering if i'll ever be able to you know buy from whole foods again you know i'm going to costco the rest of my life so that sort of whiplash is is kind of the the struggle to detach yourself from the whiplash while still having the the connection and um yeah so 60 went you know just i i loved it like i love the job of being an early stage founder irrespective of the success of, of the company but when we did have the good times they were just amazing and working with some incredible people of all different backgrounds and getting attention like from people in the space and same time having failed plenty of times in the past like i always knew like yeah this is this is going well right now and i'm very grateful and i pre- i recognize it i appreciate it but i'm not special because i'm 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 doing i'm working just as hard i'm just as committed as i was to this other company that failed and i'm doing the same thing now but it's working so you know you you sort of uh, no, that, that's something I, I was pleased not to sort of let it confuse what was kind of market success and the team success versus what was me in any special way. That helped a lot with, with the detachment. Definitely the pressure at the end, you know, of, of deciding which way to go was, you know, a lot of that was just driven by personal need and, and you know, wishes. Uh, my wife and I said separated, you know, in the last year or so. And although that was like as fantastic as it could be and, and really, you know, amicable and friendly, was still like, uh, you know, getting a, getting a small win from a, a sale of the company would certainly make my personal life a lot, a lot smoother. And so things like that you know, kind of factor into the decision at the end of the day. It's, um, yeah, I, I don't know how to describe it more than that. But Would there daily or weekly practices that you had to kind of help keep that perspective to help you have the right sort of mindset going into each day? Yeah. So, so part of that detachment, you, you realize that, you know, it's not all about you. And if you want other people to, you know, work for you or, or sort of follow the, the vision and, and follow your leadership, you really need to be in a good place you know, emotionally, physically, spiritually. So I used to look on self-care as kind of a, a perk, you know, of something. So whereas, you know, I definitely look on it now as like, you know, it's, it's actually the foundation of everything. So that's, you know, I mean, diet, exercise, sleep, you know, your, your personal relationships, you know, if they're, if they're all kind of, you know, if there's no real stress in any of those areas, that, lets you operate from a you know confident creative space when you go into work each day which is you know so, sort of somewhere that it's you know each day there's only about two or three decisions you make in a day that really matter you know the rest of it's just kind of busy work and you need to be um sharp you know if you're, if you're tired from working too late or i don't know going out drinking to you know just to have fun or you're you've just been eating crap food for extended period of time when it comes time to make those decisions your ability to to think well is is um impeded and you know i used to i used to race 
cars um, years ago in, in Australia. And, you know, there's this huge you know, drive around fitness, you know, physical fitness for, for car racing guys. And you think, well, why do they need to be fit and just sit there and, like, turn a wheel? Everyone can do that. There's no need for, for being, like, this super fit, you know, like world-class triathlete level of fitness. And the reason is that, you know, during that race, you know, a, an overtaking move between, like, first and second or live and die is a decision that you make almost completely subconsciously in a fraction of a second. And all of your fitness is so that at the end of the race is that you're thinking sharp, you know, in that all of the forces, all of the effort, whatever it is, you want to be able to get to that, you know, last lap and still be able to make the same split second correct decision that you'd make if you were fresh at the beginning of the race. It's, it's sort of a similar, you know, it's a, it's a similar thing in a, in a startup you you need to take care of yourself physically and emotionally so that as you make these decisions, you don't want to be making them based on, oh, my God, I'm, I'm, I'm freaking out because, you know, this company's going to fail and, oh, my God, you know, I don't know how I'm going to, you know, pay my kids' school bill or, or vice versa. You know, the company's going well and we're going to launch some new product initiative just because I'm feeling, you know, overly, you know, irrationally confident or something. So, so yeah, it's... It, that's the mentality, I think, that I'm getting slowly, slowly figuring this out a little bit more and more each time. Yeah. Have you incorporated uh, an executive coach into the self-care side of it? I did it with 6D. Uh, I did with Gecko for a while. Definitely worth it once you've got, like when, when would I say it's valuable? For, like to me, it would be valuable once we close an A round. Not, not just because of the funding, but just generally when a company gets to that point, you need to be more of a CEO, you know, and more and less of a, you know, hands-on founder. And, you know, generally at an A round, you've kind of got your management team at least partly in place. And so at that point, you're even more sensitive to, man, if I come into work in a bad mood and just, my tone of voice in a, in a particular meeting just because I'm distracted thinking about something else and then that executive, you know, freaks out and starts, you know, worrying about their job performance and things. And, you know, so a coach I think is, is incredibly helpful when you're, when you're in that point. And I, I yeah, highly recommend it. Excellent. And as you think about this notion of making good decisions and these two to three kind of key decision points every day, that the job you have today which is 60 is now safely part of Niantic. And your role is as an advisor, at least as of the time of this recording, your role is an advisor to Niantic. What are the sorts of, what's the advice you're giving Niantic? What are the decisions you're helping them make at this point as an advisor? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a bit of an um, ongoing process. We're working through that with Niantic. Um, my, my priorities, which you know, they were very supportive of, was like, I need a couple of months just, a break, you know, and so the last couple of months I've just been focusing on a few things in my personal life, getting them, you know, put away and, and, and you know, so put to bed and had just a few like ad hoc conversations with Niantic and there's, um, you know, they're, they're pursuing, I mean, putting aside the whole games business of Niantic, which is their, you know, hugely successful thing, but they've got this whole platform side of Niantic and 
that's certainly the area where I've, I think I've got the potential to, to have some impact there. And, you know, they're figuring it out. And at the moment, I'm just helping them understand the problem, you know, and the opportunity and try and get a consistent mental model across their team as to what an operating system for reality means, for what the AI cloud means, for which technologies are, you know, we've found useful, which use cases we've found useful. So it's been, it's been just very hands-off, high-level type of stuff, as well as talking to the press and just articulating, you know, why we believed that Niantic was a great place to, to end up. And I think, though, after the end of summer, we'll have some more, you know, in-depth, you know, I may end up having some work to do. You know, I don't know. But um, at the moment, I'm trying to avoid as much work as I can. And, yeah, find some ways that I think it can take at least the mistakes I've made in the past and, and help Niantic avoid making the same mistake. Awesome. Let's wrap up with just one enlightening round question. What commonly held belief about spatial computing do you disagree with? Oh, my favorite is that standards are... Uh, I, I tweeted something out the other day that, I, that standards are for losers. There's, a, there's certainly a... Um, uh, perception that we need standards so that all these things can talk to each other. So it's easy to build like web AR and all this stuff. But I, I definitely think that I mean, my belief is around standards in general is that take a new idea, a new technology, a new use case, a new market or something, and someone figures it out, you know, with a, with a completely proprietary solution. And they, or whatever, they may maybe build on some open source, or whatever. They, they solve the problem for this, this use case. And it becomes really successful. And, you know, assuming it's an interesting market, there's probably multiple competitors in that market, but you know, someone wins. And they win just with their own product. And then all the other guys are kind of, with like, what do they do? Do they just shut up shop and go home? Do they try and be the number two player in the market? You know, do they fight with each other for the scraps? And so what ends up happening is they realize, man, I'm, well, the market's lost. I can't really win on my own now. But if we all get together, then we can, you know, we'll all give up our own personal hopes and dreams, but we'll all standardize. And together, you know, we can fight the big guy and, and make him, you know, make him agree to our standards. And then it's all a commodity again and it's a level playing field. And, you know, that's obviously good for, consumers in theory so you know that idea that it's the losers that you know by necessity come together and create the standards in order to commoditize the market winner i think that in ar there's a lot of people thinking that you do the standard in order to win the market where no you gotta you gotta just be completely proprietary completely closed so that you can iterate fast so that you can get those rapid iterations without depending on anybody else and respond to the customer's you know, needs as you as you learn about them and then hopefully win the market. You know? And so that I think is a big, a big misconception you know, in, in the spatial computing space right now. And yeah, it's always it's always a good a good sort of bomb to throw out at a, <laughs> at a panel or something because someone is always going to get really ticked off about that 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 phrasing and and it starts a, starts a good conversation. Yeah. <laughs> the people that are most excited about the standards are usually the ones that are showing up to these sorts of panels, right? They're the ones that are 
that mm-hmm. are represented by a broad coalition of smaller companies who are the ones that are really active in the in the ecosystem. They got heaps heaps of those unpopular opinions. Yeah. <laughs> Any others you want to lob out there? Create another firestorm. Uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's kind of futile to compete against the big platforms. I, I think you know, ten years ago, you could kind of you know have a shot. But if you if you look now, like Niantic is a big company, and they're tiny compared to Snap. You know, four billion versus forty billion or something. And Snap is a nobody when you compare it to Amazon and Apple and one point six trillion dollar companies. So um, I think just the whole playing space of, of the tech industry, especially in special computing, is, um, is you've got to somehow exist in the cracks. And that, but the thing is that those cracks are so much bigger than anyone probably appreciates. Yeah, I mean, I've always been pessimistic on how long things will take, um, but I think I don't think that's, I think a lot of people are realising that now um, than, than a couple of years ago. Well, here's one that I, that I like. I think even after Apple launches their glasses, it's going to be three to five years before there is a, a big enough market of those devices to build a startup on top of. You think it's going to be a slow burn, slow rise of... Nope. No, it won't be slow. It'll be just like the iPhone. You know, the first iPhone, everyone was like, it's the iPhone. It's it didn't even have an app store. Then there was the iPhone 3G. Again, sold like 5 million or something, 10 million units. Then the 3GS sold another 10 million or so. And it wasn't until the iPhone 4, which was like, let's say, three years, four years after, um, that it really sort of took off and got to that 100 million in volume. The watch is the same. This is like version 5 or something, and it's only selling in volume now. Glasses are going to be exactly the same. It's going to be, they'll sell a couple of million of the first ones. They might sell 5 million, 10 million of the next ones. And it'll be like version 3 or version 4 of the glasses that, as a, as a startup, you can go, oh, I'm going to target these glasses and I can expect to now get like 5 million users. So, yeah, I think, I think people think once Apple announces their glasses, then it's on, you know, the startups can succeed. But even then, it's still a slow burn. Yeah, it'd be a good time to raise money. Just don't spend it. Right. I think if, if you think back to the iPhone era and the gigantic companies that were built on the back of that, the Instagram, the Ubers, that sort of thing, they all started after iPhone, yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, but before I think we got to that hundred million mark. Yeah, but they weren't really. They weren't doing, big. They weren't doing yeah, much until it was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't. So I mean, the best thing you could do as a um, founder when the iPhone was launched was go to the beach for three years, then come back and start your company. So uh, I think like, Apple classes are going to be the same. Yeah, good one. No one likes to hear that. <laughs> My appreciation for how slow the hardware really evolves and how quickly people are uptaking this based on the actual use cases that are being addressed and solved with the hardware. Yeah. I, I'm with you. It's it's a long road in front of us. Yes. Any closing thoughts you'd like to share? No, I could just keep talking all day. I'll, I'll stop, stop while I'm, uh, I'm on my head. <laughs> when are we going to learn what's next for you? Oh, I don't even know what's next. So obviously, I mean, Niantic is, there's a lot of interesting things there and it's a good, you know, what I'm, what I've, done a lot of it seems to mesh pretty well with what they need so um i think there's some, some great opportunities to have some conversations there obviously my you know the investors in 6d were, were happy with the outcome and they're quite happy to support me and if i want to do something new we got a bunch of we, we did a bunch of work at 6d figuring out what use cases you build on top of phones that can understand 3d 
And I think with Apple's iPhones this year and next year, we're going to see phones that understand 3D as kind of a commodity feature now. So I think there's lots of ideas there. I'm just like I'm consciously avoiding thinking about it because I, I know I can talk myself into stuff and get myself excited. And I'm, I really don't want to do that. I'm trying to say, no, just get back, you know, do that self-care, you know, on, on a big meta cycle, I guess this is like a 10 years of work now, have a several months of, of this self-care and then sort of launch into the next, next 10 years. Yeah. So yeah, I hope by the end of the year, I, I kind of know what I'm doing, but I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to think about it until summer's over. Yeah. Very nice. Matt, thanks so much for this conversation. Yeah, always fun. Always enjoy it. Before you go, I'm going to tell you about the next episode. In it, I speak with Corey Grenier. Corey is the CEO of Genie, a company on a mission to make the physical world around us easily recognizable to computers using mobile browser-based technology. They combine image and video recognition, web AR, and creative services to deliver unique value to brands. Prior to Genie, Corey spent many years at Snap as the first director of sales and marketing, having joined the company as part of the acquisition of Virgin's Labs, which formed the basis of Snap Spectacles. Do you remember that launch campaign around Spectacles? Corey led that. In this conversation, we chat about Virgin's, the acquisition, marketing at Snap, and how Genie is pushing the boundaries for brands. I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss this or other great episodes. Until next time.